Hey crew, welcome to another edition of the Skippy Report with my good friend Jeff McCaig. Good morning everybody. Welcome to the Skippy Report. So as the intro said, I'm sitting here with uh, my good friend Jeff McCaig and uh, we're sitting in his shop. So you might hear some funny noises if the heater kicks on. We've shut it off right now and uh, we're sitting in between two of his trailers. So welcome Jeff. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Now, one of the things that uh, I wanted to do with this is just have great conversations with friends of mine. One of the things was, I don't know, how long have we been friends? Uh, Justin was like six months old when you moved next door? Yeah, he's 21 now. Okay, so 20 years. Now, I had no idea. I don't know if Jeff remembers the first time that we met. I am not sure that I do remember. I thought you worked for Mike... Uh, the guy who did your home inspection. Right. Uh, I can't remember Mike's. Michael Grady, because I used to sail with him. So I thought you were one of his employees. <laughs> and uh, Jeff was uh, m- moving in or thinking of buying the house next door to me, which was kind of interesting. So because Jeff uh, has quite an interesting past. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit of background of where you're from and people who don't know Jeff. He's... Uh, Works in, I don't know, the automotive industry? Yeah, it's um, very generally. I, am in, I do work in the automotive industry. <clears throat> My uh, background is not automotive. Uh, it's business-related uh, in as far as education. Um, I, was, uh, I, I grew up in St. Catharines, uh, just the other side of the lake from where we are now. And, uh, as I grew, um, one of the things my father did was, um, he took me to, uh, some car races, just dirt track car races. And I enjoyed that. Um, and, and immediately started to get drawn to driving as opposed to the cars themselves. And, uh, had a bit of a passion for that throughout, uh, my adolescence and, and, uh, I ended up getting a job, as you do in the Niagara area. Uh, one of the jobs that's available to younger kids is working on a farm, picking fruit. And so I did that, and at the age of 15, I um, became a supervisor. And, and part of my role as a supervisor is I would drive a uh, flat deck car around the field to pick up the fruit that everybody had picked. And so I had a Pinto, a flat deck Pinto. And when there was no fruit on it, I I would be driving it pretty hard, sliding it around. I only hit a tree once. (laughs) But uh, I think that sort of ignited a bit of a passion in in driving and uh, it it took me down the field of um, automotive. And that's that's where I've stayed for uh, the rest of my life. Now, that's kind of interesting because... You know, most people get started in automotive racing, car racing, that sort of stuff by being interested in wrenching and working on cars and going from there. But you just wanted to drive. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, um, I don't know whether it's hurt me or not throughout the years, uh, not being overly interested in the, the minutia of the car and understanding all the data of the car and, every car's horsepower and 
I, I envy the people that have that passion and I hire them too because I need them uh, because I don't have it. It's more the driving and, and I guess a little bit more of the psychology behind the, the uh, driver of the car that interests me more in uh, what a nor- what a driver driver's uh, basic responses would be, and um, in, in the field that we've further gotten into, uh, which is car racing, we uh, are now dealing with the more elite of as a driver how you overcome fear, um, how you can capitalize on understanding the next level of of ability uh, of your ability and as a driver and um, how to extrapolate the most speed out of a car. Um, Those things really thrill me and maybe I'm one dimensional in that sense, but um, that's, uh, that that really is where my passion lies. I think it's, it's kind of cool. So the buildup to this is that you went from a kid driving a flatbed Pinto and uh, Jeff has raced professionally and coached. So if you could give us a little bit of background about that. Sure. Um, I, I've never made it to the uh, the high levels of racing. Uh, there's a big part of the high level of racing that is, um, uh, it, I guess it escapes me a little bit in that it's, a, it's it, the bigger part is it's a lot of money. And a lot of money is not what I have. So it's always been dependent on sponsors. Uh, so there's the the um, boardroom and um, the sales of, of the sponsorship. And I've not had that perfect mix uh, of, of that. So the sort of the, the other door of getting into car racing and doing some car racing is by coaching. And again, my understanding of and want to understand of the philosophy of the driver um, and uh, learning those abilities is um, uh, took me to coaching uh, and and instructing. So uh, the instruction started uh, uh, when I was in my early twenties, right out of um, post secondary school, where I, I took business, uh, <clears throat> and um, it uh, it drove the passion. Uh, my the, the boss that I had at the time put me into a, a go-kart because he didn't have the time to take his son to go-karting and he wanted his son to race and his son was eight years old. So he and uh, the son that is and, and myself went to the go-kart track and started racing go-karts. Uh, and then the next year I bought a car and we started endurance racing right after that. And um, all the while I'm teaching people on the racetrack um, <clears throat> and the in the place where I started teaching is uh, Canada's uh, fastest racetrack well in fact it's I we're actually thinking it's the fastest racetrack still in North America uh, which is Mostport, uh, which now labeled as Canadian Tire Motorsport Park uh, and I still teach there to this day uh, more on a part-time basis now <clears throat> but um, uh, the the teaching uh, has been something that's been relatively constant throughout my business career is, is, uh, regardless of what I've been doing, I've been going back to the racetrack and doing some teaching, uh, if not uh, a major part of teaching 
and that's led me down the path of, of coaching race drivers as well. Uh, I started that a number of years ago. Um, <clears throat> and uh, typically I'm coaching gentlemen racers, which are uh, guys that are a little older, have, have spent some time in business, made some money, and um, they, they want to go racing and, and uh, they have a little bit of money to spend so that they don't spend it in crashing on the track. They spend it on a coach who can hopefully keep them from crashing and, and um, you know, and, and be a catalyst to their education on, on the, on the racetrack. Um, it's, <laughs> racing is, is difficult um, to explain. A lot of people expect it to be, oh, we'll just put your foot down and and go fast. It's it's a lot more difficult than that. Uh, and, and once you get behind the wheel, or even in the passenger seat of a of a car um, that somebody really knows how to drive and take it around a racetrack, you realize that there's a lot of fear involved. Um, there, there's a number of skills that are uh, only learned once you get to a particular speed and uh, limit of traction. And, um, uh, those are the, those are the skills that take a long time to build in most people. And, um, by, by us working with, uh, more gentleman type racers, uh, and that's a loose term. I mean, it, it, uh, doesn't have to be a male by any means. Uh, I've, I've coached a, a number of female drivers who, um, have equal amount of difficulty to, uh, any of the males that, that I've taught. But I've got I've taught young and old, and um, the passion is always there. I I love to see the the when they do the breakthrough uh, of being good on the racetrack to suddenly understanding what it is to drive that extra. It's almost like crossing a line and getting to that point of uh, a drive or ability to drive the car just that little bit over the limit and not be fearful of it. Um, always say that there always is fear. It's just how you are able to press it down and put it into and, and drive it out of and put it into the passion of, of being able to control it. And I know by uh, Skippy here, I got to ask you about that name in a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, is a, is a skier, so there's probably going to be a lot of people that ski that that uh, uh, will be listening to this. And the understanding of this would be, uh, I think it's labeled as giant slalom, not giant slalom, but downhill. Yeah. Um, and downhill skiing would be very much like uh, what we do on the racetrack. There's definitely an element of fear. Um, there's the element of of being on the limit and and almost crashing. Uh, and sometimes crashing and, and all of that is there when it comes to car racing. Um, and that is, uh, it, it, it's for some people, it's not for everybody, but it's, um, it's definitely the same element of lines. There's, there's a lot of correlations between the two lines. You're dealing with gravity. You're dealing with trying to get the most out of the skis. So you have the, the, the right wax for that particular day. We do the same thing with tire pressures and setups on the cars. It, it, there's so many correlations, but the, uh, you know, every skier knows that there's a lot to be learned from a coach regardless. And same thing when it comes to, to car racing. So, and that's kind of where we are. I think, I don't know whether I went too far on that. No, question. no, no, no. That's great. Cause when, when you were relating everything to uh, skiing, Jeff and I have talked numerous times about similarities. I used to 
instruct bike cops in safe operation, doing emergency maneuvers on a bicycle, that sort of stuff. Um, also with skiing, setting up for, you know, going around gates when I used to race the apex of a, of a turning around a gate similar to the apex of uh, going around a corner in a car and understanding all that sort of stuff. So Jeff and I have ha- always had all sorts of conversations about that. And when he was talking about uh, getting to a certain point in his racing career, it always brings me back to the point where if you want to make a million dollars in car racing, start with $2 million. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about Jeff's uh, racing background. Uh, the other thing that he does now, he's uh, started a company called Event Matrix, and we're sitting in between his two trailers in his shop. And uh, I would describe his company as that he introduces uh, new vehicles to journalists and sometimes to the public. Is that correct, Jeff? Yeah. <clears throat> Again, automotive industry. Um, we have some automotive um, manufacturer clients where we do introductions of vehicles, mostly to automotive journalists. Uh, that's what's keeping us busy right now. Um, but we also do training for um, uh, dealer sales staff and do consumer drives as well. Um, and what a consumer drive is, is uh, the manufacturer will give us a group of cars, uh, vehicles, let's put it that way. I mean, it may be SUVs or pickup trucks. And uh, our job is to entertain in some fashion the general public to come and drive the vehicles so that they're not actually uh, in the vehicles with salespeople. They're in with our staff uh, who are trained professionals in, in driving in some aspect. And they can relate all of the technology of the car to the, uh, the, the person who's driving and, and show um, how good the technology is. And, um, you know, it, it just gives them that, that test drive uh, where you're getting a, almost a, a product specialist as opposed to a salesperson so that the agenda is not the same and, um, and therefore they get uh, more people behind the wheel. So those are the, the three automotive ends. Uh, we also do tire testing for uh, a national retailer and um, uh, we do a number of other things too. Uh, we provide drivers for uh, video shoots uh, in some cases. Typically, they're they're dealer type video shoots, and, um, and almost anything to to do with with vehicles. Uh, obviously, the track stuff we do, uh, lapping days to um, go kart events to. Uh, anything that's that's corporate related, um, so there's, there's just uh, pretty much if, if there's a turning wheel, we can manage it. Um, our expertise and and uh, where we uh, we focus most of our energy is doing the launches of the vehicles to the automotive journalists, which takes us uh, across the country and sometimes across North America to to actually facilitate them. And that's sort of how I met Jeff. Um, or got an introduction to him because I remember it was the year that BMW was reintroducing a new 7 Series and he had brought a car home and at that time when you had purchased a car, Jeff would show up with the car and spend an afternoon with you to teach you the iDrive system. I guess that was the main thing 
It was a new introduction of uh, of technology in the BMW 7 Series. Yeah, so um, we, uh, through BMW, uh, and I didn't have my company at that time. That was prior to my company. Uh, I was hired as a, as a specialist. And we drove the uh, car, not the customer's car, but a car from BMW Canada to... Um, the their location and uh, took them out for a drive for about an hour and we did three of these per day uh, and the idea was to get them comfortable with the car uh, it was a, n- a new system it was the kind of the introduction to having a computer within your car and um, there was some uh, trepidation to having that much technology in a car at that particular time and how am I going to deal with it and and uh, the bottom line was that we were going to people and kind of assessing them as to you know how easy it was going to be for them to adopt that technology. Some people were very um, technologically advanced who were buying this car, and some were not. Some just didn't care about it. Uh, and, and the nice thing about the car was that you didn't need to use the technology. You could... Um, set up some very basic things and uh, like how you like the heat in the seat because you could move the heat in different parts of the of your driver's seat uh, when you wanted to if you wanted to but if you just wanted a basic seat heater just set it up as a basic seat heater press the button good to go so it was uh, it, it was more of an introduction for everybody just to not be as nervous about the car and uh, once they we took them out for an hour and kind of showed them the what they could do and what they only had to do. Um, the the minimum was was uh, good, and so yeah, we I had that. I think we did that for about three months. Yeah, I, I remember the first day you brought it home, and I like cars. I'm not a real big car geek, but I, I just like cars like most guys. So I went over, and Jeff was learning stuff, and he says, "Get in." So I went to get in the. The passenger side. He goes, no, 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 no. Get in the driver's side. You'll be the you'll be the client. So we went out for a little bit of a drive, and I'd never been in a car like that before. And as we're zipping down the the four hundred one, and for the American listeners, that's like your interstate system. Uh, Jeff says, uh, remember, you have to pay the speeding tickets because without any awareness, I was already up to like one hundred and ten miles an hour. I was doing one hundred and seventy kilometers an hour. So it was. Uh, I was like, oh got to slow down can't even feel that speed in that car so it's like yeah that was my introduction and if you if you're a guy who likes cars jeff is the neighbor that you want to have live next door to you because he would bring home some really cool things so i remember one one summer he would they were introducing or reintroducing the the new beetle and he was doing a tour across canada and uh, i think there was a race car a beetle race car that showed up in a trailer and, uh, you know, the suspension was so stiff that they had a hard time going in his driveway. Um, and Jeff has friends who uh, race in Cascar, which is the Canadian version of NASCAR. And um, Robin, I can't remember Robin's last name. Buck. Right. Robin Buck would, uh, somebody, one of his crew showed up with the race car and both of my girls like cars and, and they would watch racing with me. And so it was, it was really cool, you know, get this neighbor who's got all these exotic cars show up to his house and you can check him out. And he would uh, take us along, invite us to go to uh, 
races and we'd get to go into the pits and my girls got to meet drivers and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's how I think our relationship really got started. And then, um, as, uh, Everybody knows I cycle a whole lot and uh, Jeff got into cycling and we would uh, spend most Saturdays or Sunday mornings uh, cycling and that sort of stuff. And uh, I was uh, able to convince Jeff to tour by bicycle. And Jeff is like one of those guys like me. If you need a training buddy, I'm there. Anyways, Jeff, he's such a good friend. It's like, yeah, we could do that. But Jeff had never ridden what the furthest distance you had ridden um, I think before our tour was like 40, maybe 50 kilometers. Yeah. I mean, I can remember the first day I actually got on a bicycle. You actually lent me, uh, one of your bicycles might've been Sean. It was Sean's. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think we went 15 kilometers and I came back and my legs were jello. <laughs> I could barely stand up afterwards. I'm like, I can't do this. And anyway, over time, um, I, I, started riding more and more and, and yeah, well, the first time we went, um, for our first long ride, uh, Keith, I, I don't know whether he realizes, or I think he eventually realized that when you challenge Jeff, (laughs) Jeff steps up (laughs) like an idiot. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and I don't know where, where, where this was in, in the whole mix. It must've been after, um, that I did a, a, a triathlon. That's a separate story. But Keith said, Hey, uh, go on a ride around Lake Ontario. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah. He says, yeah, we'll take, uh, take a week or do seven days and we'll ride around Lake Ontario. I'm like, okay, that, yeah. A whole day riding. I, I'm always having to squeeze a ride in in the morning and, you know, I'm pressing because I'm, you know, I've got young kids at home and I've got to get back and, and, um, you know, make sure I do my, my share of, of hanging out with the kids and, and all the chores that need to be done. And, and that, so I can't spend a whole lot of time just, you know, heading out and, and doing something like riding for five, six hours. Uh, so Keith and I would go out early in the, early in the morning on a, on a weekend, uh, usually six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, we'd take off and go for a ride and get back around nine, 9.30. Um, so it wasn't a really long ride, but then we, he said, well, let's, uh, what do you think about riding around Lake Ontario? I'm like, I, I think that sounds like a great challenge. And, um, yeah, Keith's right in that it's probably 40 <laughs> kilometers, that 40, 50 kilometers that I'd done. And, uh, we're, we're planning this thing out and, and, um, uh, he's, Keith's done all the planning where we're going to stop each day and we're going to take off and we're going to go stay at a friend's place in Mississauga. That's right. Yep. Like, oh wow, that's that's a long way. Yeah, we live a hundred kilometers east of Toronto, and their place may have been forty to fifty kilometers west of. Oh, I remember Toronto. exactly how far it was. <laughs> it was hundred. It was a hundred and forty-one kilometers that we did, and and added to that, I've I've not towed or had extra weight on the bicycle, so now I've got. We estimated about eighty pounds that I'm towing uh, with a trailer as well as now I'm riding somewhere in the range of a hundred kilometers more than I've ever ridden in a day yeah. on my first day. Yeah. And yeah. I am scared. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff. And, and you know what we're traveling through, we live in a pleasant rural countryside and then we're traveling through the metropolis of Toronto traffic everywhere, cars everywhere. But uh, thankfully we have the uh, waterfront trail 
And so we were able to ride that most of the time. So it tries to take you on more uh, quiet roads. But uh, yeah, it was uh, that was a, a really good, fun time. I uh, we got around the U.S. We quickly learned how um, the interstate system or the invention of big box stores kind of destroyed little towns because along here in Canada, as you travel along the byways, you come across small grocery stores and towns where you can get groceries and stuff. But in the U.S., we'd have to ride out. 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers out to the interstate to where the big box stores were so that we could get groceries. So there were some times we had some pretty sketchy meals. And uh, Jeff even found out that there are some types of American beer, this was before craft beer, um, that were quite strong. This Steeler beer that we found. And uh, Jeff, uh, after riding all day, not consuming a whole lot of food, just enough to get you by, you know, we each had a quart of this beer and... uh, Jeff got the nickname Church Lady. <laughs> and just from his antics, it reminded me of Dana uh, Dana Carvey. Is it Carvey? Yeah, I think it's Yeah, right. I think so, yeah. From Saturday Night Live and his uh, Church Lady skits. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I became Church Lady. Yeah. Of course. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's a story that lives and has lived for at least a decade. Um, but it's probably the best buzz I've had. <laughs> It was uh, it was pretty entertaining. I, I've got to say. I mean, the uh, uh, it was um, uh, it, probably day three, something like that. We'd gone into the US day two. Yeah, because we stayed at your parents on the second night in St. Catharines. Yeah, so day, it either day three or day four <coughs> of, of the ride, and so I'd gotten over the anxiety of not knowing whether I'm going to make it. Uh, I now sort of settled into, yeah, I can do this. And um, uh, it it became a lot of fun and we enjoyed ourselves. And especially in the U.S. where um, we found just everybody seemed to like cyclists, especially ones that were touring and obviously touring. And we were because we were packed down with bags and camping gear and trailer and that. And almost every intersection that we had to stop at, we had somebody rolling down their window of the car asking us where we're going and yeah. wishing us luck. And Which the one, the coolest thing was when we rolled through construction sites. So in the U.S., in different states, they have these rules. So the first construction site we rolled through, it may have been a half a mile long. <clears throat> and when you say construction site, just to Yeah, road, road construction. So they, they had uh, closed one lane because they were working on a lane. There was only two lanes. And so traffic uh, at each end of the construction would have to stop and only one direction would go. So they, there was flag people there and they would let you through. And so, you know, continue on now. And anyway, so we did the first one like that. And then when we got to the second construction site, we're near Rochester, New York, just past Rochester, um, heading eastbound. I told the girl that they didn't have to hold up all the traffic. And she's like, no, that's our state law. When there are bicycles in a road construction site where there's lane reduction, they have to hold traffic at both ends. I was like, are you kidding me? Like that doesn't happen up here in Canada. And, uh, you know, we would, cycling is really good. It's, it's, it's a great way to see the country. You know, you're traveling at a slow, slow pace. You're outside all the time. You know, you need to stop for directions. I learned a trick is that you find somebody mowing their lawn or somebody outside or even go into a business, introduce yourself, 
tell them what you're doing, ask about the construction site, because we came upon this one construction site where the signs anyway, and it said, you know, we had to go way out when we look at the map. It was quite a ways out of our way. So we asked this guy who sold uh, lawnmowers. He had a business, and uh, he reminded me of the guys from Orange County Choppers, uh, Paul Tootle. He's a little guy, a smaller version of him. He's like so friendly. He goes, oh, yeah, you can get through there. But you know what? If you want to stay here, you can pitch your tents. I got a pond in the back, all that sort of stuff. So people were always so friendly when we were touring. <clears throat> and and we've done a few tours. The second tour we did around the lake. I've been around the lake four times. Jeff has been around twice. And uh, the second time, uh, Jeff decided to uh, use it as a fundraising uh, event for your church, right? Because they were doing remodeling work. Yeah, um, yeah. So we we did a fundraiser for that, and uh, so it was a. We tried to make it a thousand kilometers distance. Yeah, because the usual trip is about seven or eight hundred, depending how far away from the shore you go. Yeah. So our our path this time took us. Uh, it we I think we nicknamed it the canal. Yeah. Trip. Yeah. Because we went uh, and rode. Uh, beside for definitely a couple across the, or beside the Welland Canal for quite a distance. Yeah. Uh, once we crossed over into the U.S., we went uh, and, and rode along the Erie Canal uh, for a distance. And then uh, we crossed, what was the last one, Trent Severn? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, in Kingston, would we have crossed? Yeah. Uh, no, we didn't cross. We were right beside the... Uh, the Rideau Canal or the waterway that goes up to Ottawa right. from Kingston to Ottawa. Yep. So, and w- you know what is in- interesting? Like Jeff and I probably grew up watching the same American TV stations and we would hear about Spencerport, Brockport, all these sorts of places, Machias. I don't think that's near it, but, and as we rode our bicycles along these places, there are ports on a canal and there are little tiny villages. I thought they were larger towns you know on on the lake you know it was it was really interesting and uh it it's it was uh spent a lot of time on gravel washing bikes and that sort of stuff and i remember we came upon that one group who were out raising money for uh a camp in the u.s for kids who have cancer and i know that some of the tv personalities on the CBS station on a Buffalo. I think they raise money for them. Anyways, we came across these people and they welcomed us in. They had a uh, shower all set up that we were able to use. It was kind of cold. Quite the shower. (laughs) Three tarps and a a cold water spigot. Yep. But you know what? They fed us and we hung around the entire evening with them and we got up the next morning and they fed us again and got us on our way. Yeah, it was... uh, And they were doing their own endurance too. They were paddling. Right. I believe it was an uh, eight-person canoe down the Erie Canal. And so because we were riding along the Erie Canal and we were on uh, fairly decent gravel. I mean, it was dusty, dusty, dusty. And when we finished, we were really just black uh with with dirt every day we had to wash our bikes and yeah yeah from our knees down we're filthy yeah but that was that was pretty neat they did welcome us in there was 20 or so of them and and uh we as keith said we used their shower uh independently and uh, (laughs) uh nothing weird going on 
Um, and uh, and we had a meal with them. It was it was great fun. Yeah, and and I just remember at Camp Good Days it was called that they were raising the money for. Mm. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, that that was really cool uh, riding those canals. There's a lot of American history there and Canadian history. You know, the Erie Canal was built so that the Americans didn't have to use the lake and get shot out of the water by the English at the time. So and then. Um, one of the other trips that we did was uh, I told Jeff, I said, you want to ride to Kingston and back in a day? He's like, sure. But well, Jeff thought that he would just ride to Kingston yeah. and then get a ride back. Yeah. So, well, it, as I, I think as I put it, well, I'll ride to Kingston. I'll take the ambulance back. Yeah. <laughs> Keith's, Keith's idea, and I don't know why I fall for these every time, but Keith's idea is I want to ride 200 miles in a day. And I'm like... Well, that's a little crazy, uh, but sure, let's do it. And so uh, we we went for it, and uh, yeah, we did a little bit of research. Yep. You know, you take uh, halfway through the ride on a big day like that. I, you know, I the research I did said you know take a different set of cycling shorts, a different set of gloves, so that you have different pressure points uh, riding there and then riding back. We went and had lunch at my aunt's. I think we were able to switch things up but uh yeah jeff was right there and i always remember jeff doing his research and he says um you know what we have to consume a thousand calories of food and he's got his power bars and his power gel and he shows me this big handful and i was like i can't eat that so what i did was i had uh, six bagels with peanut butter sla and jam slapped on each half and then slam them together so but uh, that was that was 12 hours I think it was a pretty good day for the most part, except for maybe the last hour and a half. Mm. And then at some point, because we rode east along Highway 2 through all the towns to Kingston, downtown to Kingston. And then we rode uh, back home west along Highway 33, which is the Loyalist Parkway. And uh, we got to Picton and I told Jeff, I said, oh, I can't eat another bagel, man. I need something different. So we uh, shared a half a, a Subway sub just to get a different taste in our mouth. It was uh, 12 hours, 321 kilometers. Anyway, so we can say Jeff and I have been able to cycle and cover all the milestones. You know, you've got like the 50K, the 100K. Uh, you've got the 100 miler, the 660 miler. And, and now we have the 200 miler, which is the 320K. So, yeah. Well, to be fair, I didn't do that. Oh, well, you were a I few kilometers short, but that's okay. 20, 20 or so kilometers. I think I, I, I made it, I, I think as I rolled in, I was 298 kilometers, and I thought, okay, I got to make it to 300. So I did the 300, but right. you had started in Port Hope. I started in Coburg. At we live point. eight kilometers apart from each other now. Now, yeah. So um, uh, your goal was to do the, the 200 mile. Mine was at that point, I was like, okay, now that I didn't have to take the ambulance back, I'm going to um, I'm going to do 300 kilometers. So that ended up being my goal, and uh, achieved it by riding, or I think around the block a few times just to make that extra to do the 300. But yeah, challenging uh, in some cases. The food issue was an issue for me. Um, I ended up having cramps um, about 60 kilometers from home. Yeah. And, uh, that, <laughs> that really hurt, but, uh, pressed through and, uh, we made it. Yep. Uh, and we even got out the next day for a little bit of a ride just to, you know, keep things loose and 
and that sort of stuff. But I remember jumping in the shower that night. Oh, oh, oh. the nether regions between your legs were quite sore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. anyway, those are, those are fun challenges. Uh, and obviously, cause these were years ago, uh, we don't forget them. So no. you, know, you challenge, you do, uh, and, um, they're, they're monumental and they, they remain in your memory, which is pretty cool. Oh so. yeah. Especially when you get to, to share it with a good friend and agreed do as we do now. We, we'll still get out to ride. Um, but lots of times we'll be sitting around cause we've discovered craft beer and uh, I remember the church lady showing up at the J Peak Craft Beer Festival. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what it is with the East Coast in the U.S. because J Peak is in Vermont. They really like their hoppy beer. And I was like, oh, man. So, But Jeff was on a mission. He wanted to get a buzz. And then he wanted me. I was the designated driver. And uh, I don't know. Did I have a mission to be to get a buzz that day? I don't think. Well, I did. you wanted to keep your buzz on the way home, so you wouldn't well, I, lose it by the time we got home. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Once I got it, but it was more a case of I enjoyed the the tasting, the different flavors. Yeah, and I just kept going, and they just kept pouring larger and larger glasses. Oh yeah, seemed, so yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not one to waste. So yeah, yeah and just, it's kind of continued to today. We don't go to the that beer festival. Um, as much, and it's changed. It's it's not as the way it was when Jeff and I went. But you know what? Wherever he and I travel, uh, we always bring back beer so that we can share with each other and sit in each other's backyard and have civilized beer tastings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah. I know. During this, uh, as I call it, the COVID time. If we can get back to the time before COVID. Um, you know, we'll be able to do those sorts of things. And uh, similarly with coffee and that sort of stuff. So Jeff and I uh, still get together and uh, enjoy each other's company. And uh, I was just thinking, we have to get out snowshoeing now we have snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, we've been out snowshoeing and cross-country skiing at my daughter's place. And she lives in the middle of a 350-acre field and woods and all that sort of stuff. So... That's where I'm going to go and uh, ski this afternoon because our ski resorts are closed. So I got to get a turn or two down this uh, field. And uh, on my way over, I was like, oh, Jeff and Christine should come snowshoeing with Sean and I. It's an awesome workout. Go out for, you know, a 5K snowshoe or a 3K snowshoe, depending on the lay of the land. Yeah. Yeah, definitely be up for that. I know Christine's wanted to do snowshoeing, and I don't think she's ever tried it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it'll be fun to watch her. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Anyways, uh, I don't know. What, what else you want to talk about? Um, well, we still haven't addressed the Skippy. Oh, right. So you you have the name Skippy, and I know that the, uh, um, at least I think it started on Facebook Live where you were doing the Skippy uh, report and yep. and you were named Skippy Ding Ding. So yeah. what's the history behind Skippy? How did you come up with the name? So if you listen to the very first episode of the Skippy Report, which is very short, it gives you a little bit of a background of where the Skippy Report came from, how it was developed. But the name Skippy comes from this guy who played basketball at my in my high school, O'Neill Collegiate in Oshawa, and his name was Brent Quinn. And he was a few years younger than me. And he was a guard, small forward, big guard. And he had a tell in his shot. And his tell was this skip. Anyway, so this other guy, Rob Rocker, would give everybody 
nicknames. And uh, so we were traveling around uh, playing tournaments. We went to Elmira, New York, and Brent had discovered pinball machines. And pinball machines go ding, ding, ding. And somehow Rob Rocker said, your nickname is now Skippy Ding Ding. So that's how I, I don't know, I just called everything the Skippy Report because that's what appeared in my head. No no real logic to it, but that's the history behind Skippy. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you've adopted somebody else's name. Yeah, I have. And and when I was doing this, trying to figure out this podcast name, I was going to call it Gear Beer and everything, anything weird. And my wife, Sean, goes, oh, you can't call it that. Like, you've got a presence on Facebook because I do wherever I travel. Like I said, I'll do the Skippy Report. And it could be somewhere stupid. It could be somewhere kind of cool and uh so it's like okay i'll just call it the skippy report so sean thinks that maybe in the future these podcasts will be filmed i was like no i'm not going to do that i'm just going to keep audio wise <laughs> yeah I, I gotta say i've i have laughed at the skippy report and i've groaned uh, more than i've laughed <laughs> in most cases but uh, the Skippy Report would end with the skipping uh, roving weather report. That's right. And I'm like, you didn't even report the weather, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I've, it used to be called the uh, Skippy Ding Ding Action News Roving Weather Report. And that's the way it was. And then I, sometimes I would forget to do the weather. So then Jeff said, why don't you just call it the Skippy Report or something like that? Or the Colbert Report. So it's like, yeah, okay, we'll call it the Skippy Report. So that's how the blog has developed, evolved. Yeah. Anyways. So our next challenge? Our next challenge? Yeah. Uh, get out of COVID so that we can get our trailers going. So some of the trailers, the two trailers that we sit are sitting between, one is a, a car trailer and the other one is a small toy hauler. So we want to uh, get out with our toy haulers and go somewhere. I think that should be the next challenge. Yeah, that sounds good. We... Uh, the, our toy hauler is typically used for business. We call it the event trailer. Right. Yeah. Jeff Jeff bought all this, spent all this money just so he could have a warm toilet for his staff. Really. Well, it's a big part of it. Yeah. <laughs> or office. <laughs> and, and both. Yeah. And both. And a place to eat. Yeah. Uh, we go into, uh, uh, in some cases, some um, secluded areas to do uh, tire testing, or or if we're putting on an event in an off-road setting um, that we can bring, at least bring the trailer to a certain point, it becomes a place where our guests or our staff can use as an office uh, a warming shelter and, uh, and a washroom. So it works in a number of ways. And um, the one I own now has a Murphy bed. Uh, so if I am using it for uh, uh, other reasons, uh, and we use it at the racetrack a lot too. We bring it to the track uh, along with the car trailer, brings the race car. And uh, so we have a place, again, called an office uh, to change into our racing gear and, um, and or sleep overnight. And uh, I use it for spectating when I'm racing or when I'm watching racing or uh, being a spotter. Um, I don't have to get the expense of a hotel on top of it. I can right. just stay at the track, which is great. And sometimes we'll take our trailer up to Mossport because it's not that far from our house. And when Jeff is coaching, sometimes there's quite a compound of trailers. We'll have our trailer and Richard's trailer there. So that's where people sleep and mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And then Jeff's got his car trailer and uh, 
toy hauler down at the race compound. So he's got his office there and they can, whoever he's coaching can have a place to sit and analyze their race and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I, I gotta say that's the most fun for me now is when I am racing and coaching at the same time, having a bit of a community there with the trailers and that, and where you can just sort of kick your feet up at the end of the day and uh, you're still talking racing, of course. Yeah. You're still talking how the day went, but you're enjoying a meal and a beer with right. with everybody. It's, you don't have to rush home. No, it's 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 nice. It's a nice community. It yeah. becomes a campground, really, yeah. at that point. It's that, that makes it a lot of fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So with COVID going on, racetracks are closed for the most part around the world. Small racetracks and that sort of stuff. So Jeff just recently uh, participated in the 24 Hours of Daytona. Right. Yes. So he's moved from real racing to virtual racing. So what what's your experience in in that? So um, I have, uh, in virtual racing, there's a, uh, a software that is uh, live. It's on... I don't know how to best to describe it. It's called iRacing. And, um, it's on the web, right? It is on the web. It's not a, it's not a game within your computer, although parts of it are. <clears throat> most of it is, is live um, on, I guess, servers, wherever they, they, uh, the, their head office is. And um, I've had this software for a number of years because I've used it. They've got a lot of trace tracks around. And if I'm coaching somebody... Um, and they're going to a racetrack I haven't been to before. I can actually go on to the racetrack and um, learn it and learn some of the nuances so that I can actually teach the uh, the guy that I'm I'm working with, f- even if I don't go to the racetrack. I can I can talk to him on the phone, uh, which I I have, uh, and he's he would send me his data at the end of the day i could analyze it based on the track i i can see the track though that's how i'd used it up until the beginning of 2020 and then uh one of my um, staff uh, richard is big into iRacing, racing and the guy that i've been coaching um most over the last five years peter um, he's into iRacing as well. And they encouraged me to, to get a little bit more into it. So I had some pretty bad equipment, um, <laughs> hardware that is steering wheel and pedals, plastic things. And I started doing it a little bit more. And then Richard um, basically lent me some of his gear and I got more into it. And most recently, um, I, uh, I, I got into the full immersion of VR. So what's, I, what's virtual reality? Virtual reality, oh, okay. yeah. So I'm, I'm not a computer geek, even no, though I do this. I, I was going to explain it anyway, because oh, okay. I figured most people <laughs> now may or may not know. And so now I'm wearing, because uh, I was using, in, in car racing, when you're doing this, uh, you can use a single screen, which basically you see forward, um, and you kind of guess what's beside you. Or you can use triple screens where you have a sing, you know, two screens outside of that. So you can actually see out your left mirror, your left window and see the rear view mirror or the side view mirror, out the, the driver's side uh, and out the passenger side as well, using the three screens. I didn't have three screens. I only had one. And uh, so now that I am uh, immersed in virtual, meaning that I'm wearing goggles, uh, they're called Oculus Rift 
goggles. And uh, now wherever I turn my head, I can see. So if I turn my head to the left, I see out the left window. I turn my head to the right, I see out the right window. I, I have full immersion. And, and uh, going from that, and I had struggled, and I had worked really hard, and, and uh, I found it very frustrating uh, because when I'm on the real racetrack, um, I have always been very, very consistent on the racetrack. And every lap after lap after lap, turn in points are within inches uh, of each other and, and uh, times were within a tenth to two-tenths of a second every single lap that I would go around uh, unless there was traffic. Um, that's one of the things I prided myself on is being really, really consistent, and that's important in racing. And when I got into the virtual world with a single screen, I just, it, it just, I couldn't get it. Uh, a, you lose a, a bunch of your senses, and I didn't realize how much I relied on the movement of the car uh, and that sense in itself, where you know your your torso, your bum, uh, are moving or feeling the movement from the seat, which is connected to the rest of the car, and, and I can feel the tires move. I could feel the suspension move all that through the, the sensory, uh, the kinetic sensory of, of my body. And when I got into the virtual world, I didn't have that. Right. I was sitting in a seat that didn't move. I got some feedback through the steering wheel, but I didn't realize that I didn't, I didn't take much information from the steering wheel. I really right. took it from the rest of, of my body. Uh, the sensory from that. And I only realized it once I got into the virtual world. So I was trying to change myself and train myself and turn it over. Um, I'd always been, I'd always worked hard on visibility and, and seeing, um, again, back to the skiers, yeah. you know, that, that if you're looking only at the gate that you're approaching, right. You're not going to make it exactly. probably past the, the gate past that. Um, so you, you really have to look further down, um, down the road, and, and uh, around the corners. And I couldn't do that because I had a right. single screen. So I was very frustrated and, and uh, uh, wasn't consistent. And it was just, I, had, I would have a good lap and I'd have five bad laps. Right. Uh, and uh, so it, it became frustrating. I just kept pushing through because I thought, oh, eventually I'll break through and I'll get there. And then I got these uh, goggles. Richard again lent them to me. Immediately, two seconds a lap, immediately wow. consistent. It was just incredible. So I have a, a new life in that now, it, or new um, um, uh, refreshment, refreshed right. life in that. <clears throat> Most recently, we ran the uh, uh, Daytona 24-hour. Yeah. Before you get going there, can yeah. I ask you, Jeff was telling me this on the phone one day when we were talking. We check into each other every couple of weeks, and uh, you said, you were having difficulty locating the shifter or something like that. Cause when you put on these goggles, then you cannot see what your hardware is like in front of you. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was interesting. I, so how, how did you manage with, with, with that? Cause then you, <laughs> did you just stick with the goggles the whole time? Yeah, I'm, I'm staying oh, okay. with the goggles. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is that definite, definite um, trade off in that, when you when you're not wearing goggles, you can see everything. Like if you if you have a, a keyboard key that you use to change something, um, some of the things and there's a lot to learn when it comes to uh, going into the the virtual world, is um, you you become a number of things that you aren't on the real racetrack. In the real racetrack, when you get in the car, you're driving, 
and uh, in the car levels of cars that we have, there's not a lot of sophistication. You're not changing the brake bias during the during your lap or during the the race. Uh, you're not changing anything. You're not planning your your uh, um, pit stop unless you are on a radio and you're an endurance race. You can talk to your crew chief and say, "Okay, uh, I think we need tires," which typically we don't do in our type of racing. We right. we uh, we don't change the tires. Hey, I, I've even you know. Jeff is talking about the lack of sophistication in the race car. I've been on his crew sometimes, <laughs> and, and he's been, you know, one of the cars is, was that Honda Civic, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's like the entry level that they were in when Jeff was helping coach uh, one of his clients. Yeah. Yeah. And we use that car because it's a slow car. Um, it's, it's great for teaching in that respect, but it's, uh, it's so sophisticated that the gas gauge doesn't even work. <laughs> so anyway, uh, not, not to paint a bad picture. It's a good car actually, but, uh, that's the only thing that really doesn't work. Uh, but in endurance racing, that's a bit of a difficult thing. So we had to start measuring in the real racetrack, how much fuel we put in and how, how far the car could go so that we would know when to pit. Um, anyway, in the, in the virtual world, uh, you're doing all of that by yourself. So if you've got to come in and you've got to refuel uh, and you've got 10 laps left and your car can do 30 laps on a tank of fuel, you only want so much fuel. So now you've got to change that and you've got a keypad that you can, you know, preset things in. Okay. Well, when you're wearing the virtual goggles, you've got to find the keypad because you can't see it. Right. So I started putting, um, I made a couple of uh, keys side by side, two pair of keys side by side. Uh, and I put uh, Velcro on them, one with the female Velcro and one with the male Velcro. And I, I memorized what I could do with those. The, the information pops up on my screen. And then I have a, a number of buttons and dials on the steering wheel, which are a whole lot easier to, to find right. while you're driving. And, and once I put the proper screen up, I could move around on that screen using the buttons and, and dials on the steering wheel and and change that. But it was a, a whole learning curve and I don't have everything figured out yet, but it was, once I got there, it was, it made it a bunch easier, but it was, again, you're, you know, you're developing something right. in, a, in a virtual world and making it work for you. And, you. and you're not getting any kinesthetic feedback from where you're sitting. No, no. Yeah. I mean, other than the uh, um, feedback through the steering wheel that right. you're getting, you get the audio, right. uh, which is pretty good. And you can change how much audio you get. So you can, you typically don't get tire noise um, because you're on a slick tire. They don't squeal so much. Right. Uh, but you can get wind noise, and uh, it's pretty darn accurate in this, that when you get behind another car, you can hear the wind noise change. Oh, really? So, so that you know that you're in a draft. Oh, okay. Uh, which is pretty cool. Right, right. Um, they, they do a very good job with the with all of the... Um, the information that they put in from the real world and making it adapting right. it to, and then there's tire wear and yeah, and setup of the vehicle that's that's uh, that's very good. Well, when you were talking about the noise, I always remember, you know, because you watch NASCAR on TV and they have cameras inside the cars, but you don't hear. I don't know what they use for mics and that sort of stuff. But then <clears throat> we have a friend, mostly Jeff's friend, Brian Max, who has raced in the Nissan Micra Cup. And he's racing this micro and he's got these videos and it's like, holy cow, man, it sounds like a tin can in there, you know, when he's racing. Yeah. it's uh, Yeah. And a lot of times that is the case. I, I had a Mazda RX-8 and um, <clears throat> same thing. We I have some videos that, that we had a sus something in the suspension 
um, that wasn't sitting, the spring wasn't sitting right. properly. So any move you made, it was just like, right. You wrote the video and it was like, oh, this is so annoying. Right. So I had to do a, a music overlay if I was actually going to oh, post okay. it or anything because right. it was just so bad. But the, the vehicles uh, typically, and Brian's is no different, they strip out everything in the car. So right. it's just, it literally it is just a tin is tin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's no insulation. There's no door panels. Yep. Uh, the door panels are taken up with a roll cage um, so that uh, if you only have the outside door skin. Right. You don't have the inside. So there's about three inches or so there that you can move the roll cage outwards oh, right, yeah. to give you a little bit more cushion room if you do get an impact from the side. Yeah. It's been kind of cool because, like, even when Jeff talked about the RX-8 that he had, so Jeff has raced a couple of times in Newfoundland Targa, which is a... Um, it's a it, Well, it's a... It's basically it's a, a rally tour. race. A ra- okay. It's a rally race. Uh, <clears throat> it's a... Uh, they call it a tarmac rally, where most rallies are either on snow or gravel roads. Uh, this one is, is primarily on pavement. Right. Uh, there's a little bit of gravel in some cases. And, and uh, we've experienced being in Newfoundland, you're, you're out on the East coast. And, and um, I know we got there one time and uh, I think it was a month before they'd had a, a flood in one area because of a hurricane and the roads were washed out. And we had a whole section that was um, not quite a kilometer long, but it was all gravel. Right, um, but other than that, it's all tarmac. Right, yeah. Pretty, it's pretty it, cool if race. if you ever get the opportunity, the listener should check it out on YouTube because I'm sure because there were several races. Right, there's one like in Tasmania or or New Zealand, mm-hmm. one in Newfoundland, and like people will, if you have a small budget, drive your race car across the country and race in the race, or you know if you have a little more of a budget, you know you can get your car shipped there and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, the people of Newfoundland really welcome this race. And I remember seeing some of the video that uh, Jeff had. You're racing through a neighborhood and some people don't make a turn and they're got their car stuck in somebody's house. And it's, you know, Jeff was saying, it's, yeah, it's like a badge of honor. This car here crashed into my house. Or mm-hmm. I remember that one Porsche, you know, he's in the ocean because he missed a turn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he hit a little bit of road gravel. Um, <laughs> and uh, it slid into the ocean in that case. And I, I think it was the same for the uh, the house. Right. The one house, I remember the um, the year we were there, our, we were running in second place in our class, and it was Thursday. So the race is Monday to Friday. <clears throat> and uh, we were behind this car by about, I think, about 30 seconds in overall. And... Um, they, uh, shortly after lunch, were heading through this area. It was a small fishing village, and there was a 90-degree right-hand turn, and uh, they missed it uh, <laughs> and ran into this house. And it's, it, I found out after the fact that it was the same house that a car hit the year before. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so the following year, which we didn't go to, um, I, I watched some video and, and I noticed that they had a whole bunch of water barrels and oh. <laughs> so they wouldn't hit it the third time. But they, they had literally just got the house completely fixed, um, like a month or two before right. the race and oh, then wow. somebody ran into it again. Oh, and, and luckily their houses are, um, they, they sit up because they're right at the waterfront, uh, just in case there's water level come up, they actually are on stilts. And I think they sit about four feet off the ground. Um, and uh, if you can imagine like a mobile home, 
Right. It's, they're like that. They don't look it, but that's, uh, and then they just have siding that goes down to the bottom to make it look like they don't have, they're not sitting on stilts, but that's right. essentially what they ran into. Yeah. And, and the target race is a stage race. So they, the, the, the racers, like a typical rally race, you've got the driver, you have the navigator, they're in a stage and they're racing. I have a picture of Jeff doing 200 kilometers an hour over a little knoll or something like that. And there's no rubber on the ground. And, uh, but when they get to the end of that stage, then they have to drive normal speed and the police know that the race is happening. So they're a little aware of these race cars and making sure that they're traveling the regular speed. So they have to drive their cars between stages and then stage and get ready to, uh, to race again. Yeah, it's, it's actually, I mean, and I think most rally races are like this. Uh, but for me, having only done road racing prior to that, um, it was a, it was a new world for me. It was pretty neat to be immersed into it. Um, yeah. And, and literally just that, I mean, you would drive to the first stage and, uh, normal speeds, normal road, you'd be, we'd be in our racing gear with less our helmet, um, and drive to the, the stage. Once we got into the lineup, uh, uh, and we were, had a particular time when we were to go, um, uh, slot time yep. slot that we had to go uh, we would get ourselves ready helmet on and so on and, and prepare all the equipment and uh, and then we'd race right and we'd race for i mean the, i think our shortest stage was two kilometers our longest stage was 40 kilometers and we would run that uh and then take our helmet off and or if the next stage was and there were some cases like this, the next stage was like two kilometers down the road, right? Just keep our helmet on, drive slow speeds and (laughs) make it to the next stage. Uh, but I mean, I I can still remember us running uh, at at a stage and, and just saying, okay, there's no way I can make this stage. I got to pee. Right. So, (laughs) So we'd run up with our helmets on to somebody's house and say, can we use your washroom? Because there were no washrooms. There. <laughs> right, right. And uh, here we are standing at some, in somebody's house in their in their powder room or something, <laughs> peeing with our helmet on. It was just this, I, I just imagine somebody looking at me thinking, oh, it's so stupid. Right. But, uh, yeah. Only in Newfoundland would that happen, right? In Canada anyways? Yeah. Or the East Coast? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it was, it was it, very neat in its sense that... Um, we raced out in the countryside. We raced in fish through fishing villages, um, and and sometimes both on, in the same stage. A lot of times, both in the same stage. Uh, we raced in gander um, and through neighborhoods. Right. So they were all subdivisions, subdivisions. and yeah. crescents, and you know, pretty much all ninety degree turns. And and people would sit on their porches watching and. Uh, it was just it was just a neat atmosphere, and in between the stages where we were doing what they call transits, um, oftentimes they would have a uh, because we're going from community to community to community, and and to get everybody engaged in it, um, we had uh, places where we would stop, and it was part of our our mandate was to stop for ten minutes in each location, and it was an autograph session. Right. So. Uh, uh, People from the area kid, would bring their kids and, and they would be there waiting and we'd pull in and we'd have um, pictures of our race car and, and we would sign them and, you know, right. we're yeah. nobody's yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody knows who yeah. we are outside of this, <laughs> this race and we're wearing a racing suit, signing these autographs, 
and they loved it. Yeah. It was it was fun for us. It was fun for them. We were engaged with the community. And um, every night there was a, a car show in each of the different villages we stopped in. Um, and uh, uh, people came out in, in droves to, to see the cars and we're working on them to get right. them ready for the next day and, um, and, and talking to everybody. It was just a, a total immersion, very, very, very cool uh, experience. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did. I did it for a couple of years. And, right. And, uh, and, and we had your last year, you actually won your division, right? Yeah. Well, because some guy drove in a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were, we were, uh, we, that it was a pretty good year in that where there's a number of cars and there's different divisions of course, and, and all different speeds of cars, but everybody has a, um, uh, I can't think of the word right now. Uh, it's not like a handicap. Yes. Thank you. Um, so the, the handicap system based on your horsepower and, and so on. And, and so, uh, we were in the, what's called the modern class. Uh, we had a, uh, it was the RX eight and, um, it was a modern class. There were 27 cars in that class. And, uh, at, on Thursday we were running second, uh, my navigator, uh, at, at the time it was his first race to navigate. Uh, he was brilliant. And, uh, navigators are very, very important in that. And that, uh, you know, we got into the second day on the Tuesday and I think it was around lunchtime. I said to him, okay, here's, here's how it's going to go. And I'd already been coaching him because I'd done it the year before with a different navigator, uh, on what I wanted to hear and, you know, just the words that I needed to hear while I'm driving and, um, uh, to what information I needed, but, uh, uh, by the, the middle of the second day on Tuesday, I said to him as we were transiting at one point, I said, you haven't made a mistake. Everything you've told me has been bang on. And uh, so I'm at a point now where I'm going to trust you implicitly. So if you say we're coming up to a 90 degree turn to the right and I can't see it, I'm going to trust that it's there. And when you tell me to that's, in 10, meaning that there's a, a tenth of a kilometer to go, I'm going to be ready to turn. Right. And I'm going to turn to the right if you tell me it's to the right. And even if I can't see it. Right. So if there's any doubt in your mind, you tell me that you think. Right. And then we, we'll do a quick discussion and make a decision at that point. Or I'll pull back a little bit so that we, can, we have time to make the decision, split decision at the end split second decision. And, uh, um, it was at that point, it was just like, everything was perfect. Like right. when you're going over a crest, everything of, was in sync. Yeah. When you're going over a crest of a hill and you're doing 170 kilometers an hour and you don't know what's on the other side, right? you don't know where there's a bend, a slight bend to the right, a slight bend to the left or where there's perfectly straight. Right. And I know the year previous I'd come to the crest of the hill and I, I back off. Right. And then it's, oh, get over the hill. And it's like flat on the floor again. Oh, I just lost like 20 right. kilometers an hour. And with him, it, he would say, this is, this is what it is. Right. And foot would be buried the whole time. And it made such a difference. We brought us up. We were in second place uh, on the Thursday, as I said. And uh, the other car drove into the, into the house, made, yep. it, made a mistake. Uh, we went into first and never left it. For, for people who who don't know this the navigator their head is buried in a binder they do so much prep they they go through making all their notes the night or days before 
and uh, they just kind of sit looking at a binder and they do the, ro- the, the stages or the course with their face buried in a binder talking to the driver saying in so many meters there's a 45, there's a 90, there's a stop sign, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So they're, they're, they're not a passive passenger. They're like, and, and I would imagine that um, you wouldn't want to have uh, too much motion sickness. No, that, that's definitely <laughs> one of the criteria. My first navigator did have right. motion sickness, and, and uh, um, he wore uh, a motion sickness patch right. um, throughout the week. And it, it did end up affecting him later in the week. Um, because he would just had too much of that. Right. But this, this guy, uh, Mike, <clears throat> my second navigator, uh, did not have motion sickness, uh, was a, um, uh, a race instructor, former instructor, had be- spent some time in the passenger seat instructing, so I knew he could handle the motion uh, and also have the advantage of, of being a driver as well, knowing what the motion meant, even if he wasn't seeing it. Right. So... Um, that was a, a big advantage. Um, there was something else I was going to say about him as well in that um, oh, his, his calm approach was, was important. Right. Uh, and uh, the, oh, the, the other thing I was going to say is that unlike, um, if you've not seen this rally in particular, um, the um, uh, regular rallies that are out there, they do what they call reckies. So they go out and, and they actually um, make their own notes on the course that they're going to run. This particular one is, uh, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to go on to the course and see the course prior to driving it. So when we go on it, both the navigator and the driver have never, in theory, seen the course before. Um, so it's, it's a, a route book that has been developed by uh, a professional navigator who's put the book together and then you have to trust what that navigator right. has done. And so there's something like 3,500 turns that we would make. Wow. And there would be in the, in the notes, there would be probably a thousand uh, turns that are actually noted. Right. Other ones aren't that important. Right. Right. Uh, and that's why it was a case of, you know, we had to make judgment calls right. on, on a few things, but um, yeah. Yeah. Just, Crazy. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. There are, I think some, and this is back in 2007. So we're, we're talking 15 yeah. so years ago. Uh, but there, there are still some videos on YouTube. Um, if you search Targa Newfoundland um, and the RX-8. Right. Uh, you'd probably be able to find them. I think we have three videos up there that are in-car videos. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, guess it's getting to that time. So uh, I'd like to... Uh, Thank Jeff for uh, providing a space so that we could uh, not have to wear face masks and uh, taking his time to uh, sit down and chat and gives us a reason to get together because during this COVID time, we try to stay away from everybody, stay in our houses, stay safe and all that sort of stuff. So thank you very much, Jeff, for uh, coming on the show. Uh, You're welcome. And it's been my pleasure. All right. Check back in a couple of weeks. Uh, for another Skippy report.